So I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time since we started uh, with the book of John. Um, and uh, there's a few reasons for that, one of which is the topic material, which is uh, perhaps this is some of my, not only my favorite uh, encounters in the book of John between Jesus and the people that he is teaching, uh, but also the topic matter is just so powerful and wonderful. And my the second reason that I that I am, have been looking forward to this is, is I think this is one of those places where uh, if you haven't already been challenged enough and you're thinking about the book of John, where hopefully we're going to start to see with increasing frequency. These little places uh, where we bring in like other theologies and doctrines and we, we sort of cram them into John where perhaps they don't fit because we're trying to support our other doctrines. And I think when we stop and we say, all right, what is what is John trying to get across uh, to us right now? Uh, we try to stay in the text a little bit. I think we're going to find uh, some exciting and some challenging and some interesting things. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it too much, uh, but uh, you're, you're in for a treat, I think, today on the Apostles Mailbox. All right, so like I said, we're uh, talking about uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to find that Jesus is on the lamb today. Uh, he's not on the lamb like the lamb of God, but he's on the lamb like on the run uh, from, the, from the police. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, uh, but I thought it was fitting for what's going to happen here as we read in John chapter 4, and I'm not going to spoil everything any more than I already have, and we're just going to get right into the text. Uh, so we're reading in John chapter 4. I've got the English Standard Version up here, um, and so uh, you can follow along in that, or uh, you can, I guess you can read the, the NET there if you've got this up on video, or if, you've, if you know Greek, you can read it here in the Greek too. Okay, so <laughs> in John 4, uh, we read, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, uh, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Uh, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight this here. Okay. Uh, now, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Okay, so now the passage goes on past that, um, but it's so long, there's so much going on that we're going to take this in at least two, if not three, uh, steps, um, because I don't want to have to just rush through it and miss some important things that are there. Um, and we're going to begin with this uh, idea of baptism, okay? So when we picked up in John chapter 4, we have uh, Jesus has learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And we have this little sort of parenthetical aside uh, where John uh, the evangelist tells us, although Jesus himself did not baptize, okay, but only his disciples. So, uh, what John wants us to know, what the evangelist is telling us, is that um, part of Jesus' mission is indeed to see people baptized in water uh, as a sign of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is something that John the Baptist had started. We've talked about this before. John the Baptist was doing it. Now Jesus is doing it. But um, he's going to point out, the evangelist is going to point out that Jesus himself act, didn't actually baptize anybody. And you, and you would think, like, some of us, if, if you're from a more, shall we say, low church uh, type background, uh, uh, where, where you might have this assumption, like, uh, honestly, this is how I look at it, that anybody can baptize anybody uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and in fact, when I was in college, I was working for a, a campus ministry. I was interning. I had a friend who came to know Christ, and uh, and, and so uh, he, he wanted to be baptized. So we just loaded a bunch of people into the van, and we took him down to the lake, uh, and I baptized him. And I was not an ordained minister at the time, uh, but one who is in Jesus Christ. And so uh, under that assumption, under that a presupposition that baptism is not about the merit or the value or even the credential of the person being baptized, but it is about the the state of heart and the decision of the person being baptized. Uh, and, and this is not to discuss infant baptism, of course. This is uh, an adult who becomes a believer and is baptized. Right, And so, uh, we baptize him because we recognize that the name that you're baptized into uh, is more significant than the name of the person doing the baptizing. All right. It would be, it seems to me, if if there was some importance, if there was some uh, value in the the deserving or the character or even the commission of the person doing the baptizing, then the obvious choice would be that in Jesus' baptizing ministry, that Jesus would do the baptizing. But here's the deal. In John 4, we find out that Jesus had his followers do the baptizing. And so, uh, nobody is like, missing out because, oh my goodness, can you imagine if you had just been here um, and then you could have been baptized by Jesus himself in water. That was not the baptism Jesus came to do, okay? He, John has told us that he's going to baptize in, uh, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? So, Jesus' role was to, to fill us with the Holy Spirit and his followers then uh, baptize in water as a symbol of repentance. Okay, and so there's a little bit of a, if you will, there's a little bit of a play going on here because as we just read, of course, the, the discussion of water and living water is going to come up. Uh, but when Jesus talks about that water, he's not talking about baptizing in water. And John is making a clear contrast here 
that when Jesus talks about giving living water a little bit later on down, he's going he's not going to be making the, the point that Jesus baptizes in water uh, because he's just pointed out that Jesus isn't baptizing in water. His disciples are. Okay, so I'm gonna I belabor. I know I belabor the point a little bit, uh, but I want you to get that clear. Like um, Jesus is not baptizing in water, uh, and, and and one of the one of the reasons that I want to point this out is not only because of the the contrast that's going to come up with water, uh, but also for this point. Okay, being an influencer has always been a desirable thing. All right, uh, going on YouTube and making lots of money just simply to shill products for companies. Um, is uh, is relatively new, but wanting to have influence and clout and and the value and the benefit that comes from that is is a is a fact as old as time. So when we look at this passage, we notice this that Jesus has learned, and uh, and the you'll note the the NET says he knew, uh, but this the the Greek verb here has this sense of coming to know something. Okay. And so Jesus has come to know that the Pharisees had heard about Jesus, that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And when, when this knowledge gets to Jesus, uh, then Jesus decides, hey, we got to leave Judea. We've got to, uh, we've got to get out of here and we're going to go back to Galilee. All right. Now, John, the, the evangelist doesn't tell us exactly uh, why Jesus um, thought this was important. Was he just waiting for the Father's time and the time just wasn't right? Uh, or was or was this a matter of like he literally was fleeing from the from the authorities, like he's getting out of Dodge before they cat, catch him and put him to death? Uh, or is it something else? Uh, I think most likely what's happening is Jesus knows that already the Pharisees and and the the and the rulers in in uh, Judea, they, they are aware of John and his growing popularity, and, and people who grow in popularity are a threat to people who are already in power, okay? And so, uh, the, the, the authorities are being threatened, and now word has got out that if John's a big thing, Jesus is even a bigger thing than Jesus. He's getting more disciples. He's baptizing more disciples uh, than John, and therefore, you, those people in power are going to see him as a threat. And so Jesus says, now's not the time. I still got other things that I need to do before they put me on the cross. Uh, and he knows what is ahead. He knows that his death is ahead. Uh, and so uh, he, he needs to get out of town until the heat dies down a little bit. Okay, so uh, it has become known that he's a bigger deal than John the Baptist. And so he has to get out of town. And there's another reason that I bring up that uh, it's important to emphasize Jesus was not baptizing. And I think this also comes into the fact that when we talk about baptism and, and followers, uh, we have this uh, statement in 1 Corinthians 1 where the Apostle Paul is getting on the on the believers in Corinth because they're starting these factions. They're arguing about whose they are. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, whatever. And Paul makes this point. He says, look, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He's he's making this point like I don't want to have anybody to have a like an excuse to say they belong to me just because I baptize them uh, because that's ridiculous. Uh, he he points out that we're baptized into Jesus, <laughs> of course, uh, and so uh, Jesus himself could be doing that baptizing, 
right? But the, the point of being baptized into Jesus is not that Jesus himself did the baptizing in water, but it's the baptizing is a sign of your repentance and your inclusion in the death and a resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? So being baptized in the name of Jesus really has nothing to do with the person doing the baptizing. But at any rate, the point being, like, you had Jesus Christ in the flesh there. If there was anybody ever any reason to have to say that this person is qualified to baptize, it would be Jesus himself, and he doesn't even do it. He has his disciples do it, okay? Uh, which should cause us, perhaps, to reconsider some of the things that we have to think about baptism, okay? So, that's number one on baptism. Uh, uh, the second thing that we're going to see here, uh, Jesus is heading north from Judea up into Galilee. He has to pass through this region called Samaria. And he comes to this town uh, called Sychar, and it's near a field that Jacob has given to his son Joseph. Okay, so now we know that Jacob is an Israelite, and his son was an Israelite, and uh, all their descendants were Israelites, and the people who live there who inherited this land uh, are Israelites. Okay, so... Uh, we do have, actually, this is the nation of Israel, and this is land passed down from Jacob, who was Israel himself. All right? So, uh, nevertheless, so he, he sits down, um, and, uh, and he's tired. And we'll talk about this in a minute. Jesus is tired. Uh, but I'm going to skip that right now. Um, so a woman from Samaria, a woman who lives there, she comes and she she and Jesus asks her for a drink, and she can't figure it out why. She says, uh, "How how are you going to call? How are you going to ask me for a drink? Uh, I'm a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans." Now, there's two ways you can look at this. One is to say, like, no, Jews literally have nothing to do with Samaritans. Um, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering that in uh, that it says right here in verse 8 uh, that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. <laughs> so, uh, Jesus' disciples just went into town to have some business dealings, at the very least, uh, with the Samaritans to buy food from them. Uh, so, it's not like they were like, you know, lepers, like they had the plague, uh, perhaps. Um, but there was definitely this incredible, like, racism, um, between the, the Jews, who saw themselves as pure, and the Samaritans, who they regarded as inbred with the nations and defiled and impure. So, uh, the Jews saw the Samaritans basically as half-breeds, uh, and they didn't want to be defiled by them. And one of the things that we know about Jewish culture is that a lot of it, a lot of their laws had to do with cleanliness and purity and, and remaining set apart and remaining clean. And what's going on here? is that we have Jesus asking for a drink, but he doesn't have anything to get a drink with. And this woman from Samaria, she came, she has something to draw water with, uh, and, and she says, uh, how are you going to ask for a drink for me uh, when you don't have anything uh, to draw with yourself? Uh, what would have to happen is that Jesus would have to drink from her uh, bucket, or, or probably they used a, an animal skin on a rope, like, to draw out some water. And so she's like, if, if I give you a drink, you're going to have to drink from my my glass, essentially. That would, uh, you're, you're, you're going to really, you're going to share a drinking glass with me? That is just unthinkable. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So, you know, Samaritans versus Jews. Uh, back in, in the days of, uh, in, in, 
uh, days gone by in our country, they had different drinking fountains, right, that you had to use depending on which race you are. And so uh, to think that the, the Samaritan woman's like, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a woman, that you're that uh, is is of an unclean race, and then you're going to talk to me, number one, and and then you're going to ask me for a drink, and you, and you're going to drink from my water, uh, my water bucket. That ju that just it's it just doesn't happen, right? And so she's confused because there's this terrible division and racism uh, going on here, um, and probably some I don't know, probably not some sexism, honestly, because uh, Jesus. If Jesus would have asked a Jewish woman uh, to draw him uh, a, a drink from a well, she probably wouldn't have got offended and said, why would you ask for a woman for a drink? She would have just said, okay. Um, so uh, what's going on here, though, is that he, is, he has crossed a major, major barrier. Okay, barriers perhaps that we wouldn't cross. Okay, okay. So we got liberals and conservatives, and now we know that to even talk with somebody across the long wrong side of the aisle or be friends with somebody who's politically different from you can get you canceled from everything. Um, in our society today, we're back in those places where like undesirability is catching. Like if you associate with the wrong people, you're also um, impure and unclean. Uh, and so perhaps we're not as far away from the days of the Jews and the Samaritans as we might like to think. Uh, we like to, to, to put in these blanks and say, well, if you're not in this party, you're in that party and we're enemies. Okay, but here's the thing about Jesus. We know John 1 1 said everything that was, everything that defined God is true of Jesus. He said what God was, the Word was. And so Jesus is the one who does this. Peter, uh, Acts 10, Peter has this realization. He opens his mouth. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Okay, so Peter calls it out straight in Acts chapter 10, but this is the first sort of glimmer that we have, is that the God who loved Abraham and the, and the Jews uh, would love the Samaritans who are a half step removed from that, like they're half-breed Jews. Um, and eventually, of course, the gospel then is going to go to the Gentiles, which people recognizes in Acts. Um, and actually, Jesus also uh, serves some Gentiles as well, uh, but uh, not to get too far afield here. So uh, what we have here then is Jesus crossing a major boundaries. He's engaging with a Samaritan woman, and he exp he's going to share her drinking glass uh, or bucket uh, with her. And, uh, and so she gets fixated on that, but you'll notice here's what always happens with Jesus, right? When we're thinking one way, Jesus is very often somewhere else, right? He's trying to teach us something. He's trying to show us something, but we've got our blinders on so much that we can only think of the one thing, right? So um, this actually happened in Sunday school this morning. <laughs> we were reading in Exodus, and, uh, and there's this comment, there's this really strange thing happening um, and as we're discussing it, somebody brings up like, well, but you're saved by faith. And and uh, as if that was in the text there. But it wasn't in the text there. It was 
you know, it was his ideas that he had floating around in his head elsewhere. But um, because he had those ideas of how we're saved floating around in his head, uh, he stuck those in the text where they really didn't fit. And it was just sort of this like disjunctive of like, are we reading the same passage together? And and this is what's going on here with the Samaritan woman is like, are we talking about the same thing here? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, and this happens with Jesus a lot. It happened with Nicodemus, remember, just in chapter 3. And it's happening again with the Samaritan woman. And I would challenge you to consider that when you read the Bible, um, it's possible that the same thing happens with you, right? It's the same thing as possible to happen with me where I bring all my ideas and I bring all the things that I learned in Sunday school and I bring all my doctrines and many of the unique doctrines to my denomination, however I was taught up and I was taught like this is true and that's wrong. And I bring all those things with me and then I read the text and then I just somehow just like subconsciously filter out everything that disagrees with my preconceived notions and then I only see what my preconceived notions already trained me to think and that's what I assume that's what the text is about. Just like this Samaritan woman. She she walks in, she assumes Jesus shouldn't want to, wouldn't want to talk with her and then he, he brings us up and she's like, what's going on? And we're going to see further in this conversation she's just not on the same page and this is a warning. Uh, for us, okay? It's called confirmation bias. I think we've talked about this, uh, where we tend to see things that reinforce what we already uh, believe to be true, okay? So, but here's the big deal. Like, here's here's where I just love this passage. Um, it's so good. Jesus tells her, this is, this is the crux of what he wants to get to. He says, look, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, so here's Jesus. He's saying, you have to understand that if you knew what God's gift was, and if you knew who was talking to you, you wouldn't be marveling about me asking you for water. You would be asking me and I would be giving you something else, this living water. And this is remarkable uh, for a few reasons, okay? One is this. Uh, Jesus is offering to this woman the Holy Spirit, all right? Now, I... Uh, <laughs> Again, depending on where you, how you grew up, when you hear that term, the gift of God, you think, well, what is the gift of God? Well, the gift of God is uh, eternal life. The gift of God is salvation. The, the gift of God is the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit. And, and I say this, even Jesus doesn't say, I would give you the Holy Spirit. He said, I would give you living water. And then as we read, right, he says that this water would become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the, the, the water is the source of eternal life. It's not eternal life. So we can't say the gift of God is eternal life because the gift of God is this living water and that living water wells up into eternal life. Okay? So, uh, furthermore, though, the, the bigger thing is this. Uh, in John 7, we have this. So, the evangelist writes a few chapters down the road. We have to skip ahead to see this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? So, the rivers of living water, then the evangelist tells us, 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so Jesus is saying, I will give you living water, and we're going to find out later that the living water refers to the Spirit. It's told to us in black and white, and here's the remarkable thing. Jesus is offering the Holy Spirit to this Samaritan woman, uh, and, and uh, the Jews wouldn't have even seen her as fit to like share, to share a bucket of water to drink from with, okay? And so Jesus is offering her the Holy Spirit. Now, the other remarkable thing is this. You'll notice there's a contrast here, okay? So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, and this gift of God is the Spirit, right? And then he said, if you know who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. So the one saying is the who. He says, if you knew the gift of God and you knew this who, that is saying this to you, give me a drink. Then he says, you would have asked him, so that him is Jesus, right? And he would have given you the living water. So, uh, what's remarkable about this? Well, here's the remarkable thing. The remarkable thing is that Jesus is saying, I have the authority to give you the gift of God. All right? So, <laughs> what's the big deal? We know Jesus can do that. Uh, well, um, that's because you're bringing with you, I think, this idea of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all equally divine, right? Uh, but what's on display right now is not the divinity of Jesus, okay? What's on display is here. Jesus has learned, that is, it implies he did not know something, and then he came to know it. Uh, and then Jesus is wearied, he is worn out, he is operating according to the limitations of the human flesh, and so he has sat down, and then he tells her that he has the right or the ability to give her the Holy Spirit, all right? And then further on, we're going to find uh, in this chapter that he refers to himself as the Messiah, as the Anointed One. And remember, right, we saw this last time, actually, I'm just going to look this up real quick here, uh, John 3. The end of John 3, we had this statement. Uh, um, that the one God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Uh, so God has given the Spirit without measure to the Son. The Father has loved the Son and given all things into his hand. And so the reason that Jesus can give the Spirit is because the Spirit has been given to him and has been put into his hands by the Father. Okay? So... Uh, here's the here's the point. The Father has given Jesus the Spirit and said, you can give my Spirit then to these people, and it's being offered to the Samaritan woman. All right? Now, maybe you're not with me. You don't think that's quite so exciting. Um, but I think we'll, I think we'll get there as we continue 
through John. Okay, so Jesus has just made this huge, huge statement. I have the right to give you God's gift, which is living water. And the woman is not following. Okay, so her response, wait a minute. She says, sir, you have nothing to drink water with. The well is deep. How are you going to get that water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That is, no. Uh, he gave us this well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus, like literally the Messiah, is there talking to her, the Son of God. And she's like, are you greater than our father Jacob? Clearly not. Uh, he gave us this land. He gave us this well. Like, we're superior to you. We, we belong here. Uh, you're going to come in and you're going to offer me some living water. Where are you going to get that from? There's no well better than this one. This is, this is Jacob's well. Um, and so she, is, she, is, <laughs> she doesn't believe he can do this, right? And Jesus says to her, he says, look, if you're going to drink of this water, the water from Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So what's going on here? She pushes back. And honestly, like, maybe this woman really just wants magical water so she won't have to keep coming back to the well. Uh, that's possible. That's maybe the point. Maybe she's just mocking Jesus. She thinks, oh, this guy is totally out of his gourd. He's going to get me magic water without a bucket from some other place because I can get water from this well. What gives? Uh, sure, yeah, why don't you give me this water? And then I won't have to come back here and, and be thirsty and, and draw any water. Uh, but either way, what's clear is that she has missed misunderstood Jesus. Okay, I want you to see this. Nicodemus misunderstood Jesus in chapter 3. Uh, prior to that, the Jews, they misunderstood Jesus when he was talking about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it, right? So what does John want us to know? We misunderstand Jesus. The Jews, Nicodemus, these were experts in the law. These are the religious experts Right? You can, you can find people today who are like experts in, uh, in first century, uh, second temple Judaism, they call it, like first century Judas, Jewish belief. They do all of this study and they figure out all the things that they taught and believed in. Well, you know what? Uh, these guys lived it. Nicodemus, the Jewish leaders, they lived in that time. If they were experts in second temple Judaism, it was them. They understood what all the Jews believed and taught and looked forward and expected. They knew all of this, and they misunderstood Jesus, right? Now, we open our Bibles and we go, oh, I'm just going to read this, and then I just, I'm going to just magically understand it. We just assume that whatever thought pops into our head when we read the Bible, that must be what it means. Uh, just like this woman spit out whatever idea popped into her head when Jesus was talking about it, but she misunderstood it. And I think we do the same thing. We don't realize we're doing it. We think we're having this like honest, earnest discussion with God and his Bible, and we're reading it, and we have this thought, so we assume that it must be true, but that's not the case, 
right? You, you <laughs> they're the the experts are wrong. The Samaritans wrong. We're here two thousand years removed from the situation. We don't understand drinking glasses and Samaritans and Israeli geography, and we we don't understand any of the context of what's going on here. And we read it and we're like, oh yeah, I know what he means there, right? <laughs> and I think uh, we do this to our own peril. I think we also misunderstand it. And why is that? Well, here's the deal. Um, if you ask most Christians, uh, I would guess today, what the gift of God is, they would say eternal life. Um, forgiveness of sins, maybe. That we can go to heaven when we die. They might rephrase it in many, many different ways. But my guess is that a minority... Uh, some Christians certainly, but my guess is that a minority of Christians would say the gift of God is the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. That is the Spirit of the living God living in us, transforming us, and creating life in us. All right, the New Testament witness, Paul repeatedly talks about keeping in step with the Spirit, right, and putting to death the flesh. Uh, his, the, the, the point is that our flesh, our sin nature, what 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 inhabits the, the desires that are corrupted by sin within us is death. It leads to death. Sin causes death in our life. When you do wrong, it brings destruction into your life. And when the Spirit comes in and changes you and transforms you and gives you different desires and different passions and different habits, uh, that is life growing in you. And so every bit of the Spirit that has control over you is a source of life for you. The, the life that the Spirit grows up to, into is not like someday I can go to heaven when we die. It is this desire that the living, perfect, righteous God, the source of all good and right and life and living things in the universe, would, by His Spirit, that He would inhabit us and He would cause that same life to grow up in us and out of us. Right, And so uh, we, we get it in our head like, well, I want to get saved, but, but I'm afraid I might have to change my, my habits, or I'm afraid I might not be able to do these things that I like anymore. What we don't realize is that everything that has to go from our life in terms of habit and whatever uh, things that we like, if God requires it to be out of our life for the presence of his spirit to flourish, it's because those things are a source of death and destruction in our life. We just don't get it. Like, if we truly understood that the Spirit brings life, we would just be starving to say, like, God, okay, please eradicate all of the flesh and all of those old desires. Like, please just clean that out and replace it with your Spirit, with your life, so that I would only love and desire and crave to do what's right. That the most uh, enticing and desirable thing in me would be righteousness and truth and life and love. Right, So the Spirit wells up in us into eternal life. And so many of us think like, I just want to get saved. I want to get the sin and the guilt problem dealt with so that someday I don't have to suffer in hell when I die. We don't realize that that's not how it works. God wants to give us life. Like the reason that we're afraid that God might uh, chisel, that, that coming to God might, might cause us loss is because we're afraid he'll chisel out these things that can't bear the light of day. In, Nicod in, in, in this conversation with Nicodemus, right, in John chapter 3, uh, we're told, right, that 
People didn't want to come into the light because their deeds are dark and they need to remain hidden. And what's in our flesh that fears God, that's afraid of what might happen if we truly came to him wholeheartedly, is the part that wants to hold on to darkness. But here's the deal, my friends. Revelation says that the eternal state, there is no sun because God is the light, right? Because his presence is always bright and present to us. In other words, there are no dark corners in heaven where you can hide with your sin. You can't take any of that with you. And if you want just to get into heaven and also to hold on to your darkness, what a rude awakening that will be. You won't be able to bear to come into the light if your deeds are dark. And so what God wants to do to you, my friends, when you come to Christ, when you, when you ask Christ to give you life, is that he wants to put his spirit, the source of all life and goodness, he wants to put that spirit in you and transform you. And he wants it to bring new life, transformed life up into you and out of you. That's what God wants to do. He doesn't want to just cancel the, the, the guilt-sin problem. Though that, of course, is part of what happens when we come to Christ. But he wants to rip out the darkness, the flesh, the sin, the self, and he wants to replace that with living water that satisfies for all eternity. So here's my challenge to you, my friends. I think it's possible that you have misunderstood Jesus. It's possible even to read this passage and to think, oh, what Jesus is, is really offering this woman is that she can have her sins forgiven. Well, no, that's not what he's offering her. He's offering her the very life of God himself to live in her and to well up out of her. And she doesn't get it. Do you get it? If you get it, then get on your knees and say, Father, give me more of your spirit. Let your spirit birth more life in me. Let it push out all of this death. Here, God, let me, show me how. Help me to put my own flesh to death so that I can get it out of the way, so that more of your spirit can have a hold of more of me, so that I can have more of your life. That, my friends, is what the Christian life is about it's not about just questions of guilt and innocence or getting away with murder, going into heaven versus hell when you die. It's about the present, the living presence of God transforming you and bringing you to share in his very life. So I've been trying to hold myself back from getting here for the last weeks as we've been walking our way up to this. There's more yet to come, but I want you to understand Jesus is the one who God put the fullness of his spirit in and gave him uh, the right to give that spirit to us. And Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And even now you can stop and you can say, Jesus more of the Spirit, give me more of the Spirit, and God will answer that prayer. I hope you'll do it, and I hope you'll be back here next time when we continue reading the book of John together and see the rest of this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well. Mm -hmm.